0: My name is Maddie Young, and I'm one of your hosts of Climate Vibes. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Crystal Huang of the People Power Solar Co-op. Crystal is a community organizer focused on climate justice and social equity. She's a founder of the People Power Solar Co-op, as well as Cross Pollinators, which encourages collaboration between changemakers. Her work with the co-op makes solar investment an accessible wealth-building tool for Oakland communities. Together, we spoke about the wave of change that this co-op is a part of, and what this means for our world. you are listening to Climate Vibes, a podcast by The Climate Music Project. so much for coming on I'm really excited to talk about the work that the co-op is doing
1: I look forward to what you have what questions you have to ask do
0: you want to just jump right into it
1: I'm down with anything okay great
0: yeah I guess just more generally how does your organization help communities engage in innovative climate solutions
1: sure Um, Well, People Power Solar Cooperative is a movement cooperative. For those people who know what cooperatives are, they're generally limited to either worker-owned cooperative or consumer-owned cooperative. We're the combination of both and also on top of the fact that we leverage the cooperative corporation's uh, securities law that allows communities to come together, pool resources, and collectively manage a shared asset. In In our case, that's the energy asset. So we call ourselves a movement cooperative that aims to change the face of energy ownership in United States for the grassroots empowerment of communities. So in many ways, we don't look at solar or clean energy as the solution, but we look at solar and clean energy because they're so distributed. They're really a tool to, to create and generate community power. We really mm-hmm. focus on power itself. So our member owners are Californians who are frustrated with our current energy system. Most of them are renters, low-income homeowners, and homeowners with shaded roofs who cannot otherwise own a piece of our energy transition. And um, so in many ways, again, we're using the technology as a tool, but really focusing on building power, literally financially and politically.
0: So logistically, with the solar and renewable energy that people may not have access to participate in directly because of where they live or the fact that they're renting, you know, those can be huge barriers to accumulating wealth and uh, getting to actually participate in this. So, you know, does somebody volunteer their rooftop and then what kind of benefits do they receive? What kind of benefits do the co-op members receive from participating in this?
1: Yeah. So we generally like to come with really identifying the worldviews that we are approaching the solution. So we first like to just kind of talk about the three different state of minds that we generally operate in, in the society. There's the market state of mind where you buy and sell things like energy. And if you cannot afford it, you get power shut off. If you cannot afford it, you don't have access to it. And then there's a charity state of mind where you give folks free or cheaper stuff, which really cause folks to rely on these rich strangers who got rich from the market state of mind. And in many ways for a hundred years, energy has really been showing up as just like you just pay your bills and don't don't worry about anything in the back end and so when energy shows up in our life in the society that is surrounded in the culture of individualism when we look at energy we look at how do I take care of myself my household but it's really important to recognize that everything is connected in our world and we've really felt that with the pandemic so when we're really looking at solutions, we're really looking at this thing we call the commons state of mind. It's really important for communities to be able to decide for ourselves and build together instead of relying on somebody who got rich so that we can help ourselves as individuals to get ahead or, or get by. But it's really about how do we get together and solve together. So the common state of mind is really about how do you work together to build wealth in our communities. It's not about have versus have not. It's not about people volunteering or donating. It's about really recognizing what we all collectively have and come together and build. So there might be property owners who have property and they're worried about the climate crisis, but they have a choice of say, take care of themselves and use all the money they have and put solar and battery storage maybe on their home. And then voila, they're good for themselves. And then maybe they can go on with their days and hope for the best or they can really recognize that equity, racism, um, and climate change and environmental disasters, they're all connected in some way. And how do I use my asset and my resource that I have to actually build wealth for the community? This is not about donating. This is about recognizing that I don't know everything and together we know a lot. So how do I organize with my community so then I can share my wealth Again, not donating, but really recognizing that we need to invest into our local community and empower our people, activate our people so we can actually build the system that actually needs to for us to come out of climate change. Um, I don't believe the, the problem of our climate disaster is because of fossil fuel alone. It's about the entire economic structure that we rely on in many ways. So there's a lot of things that we can do to change our energy system and our economic system, which really stems from our relationship with each other. So Mm -hmm. we create this model that allows people to come together, pour resources, share wealth, and really have a much better relationship with energy more than just consumer. So you're totally right. It's not
0: charity because people are, they're providing the resource of, land and then the community members co-op members um, provide financial resources to build the solar correct
1: yes and there are also a lot more than that in a way that um, like social capital is important like the knowledge of resiliency is more than just battery it's how much we are talking to each other and supporting each other because Mm -hmm. as we know very well from the pandemic just having food and shelter is not enough we need community. We need that physical touch. We need that connection from each other. And so when we're pulling resources together, it's not just about, okay, let's rely on the people with the, the financial capital and the physical capital. When we're talking about people coming together, this is a very emotional process because humans are irrational. So how well can people come together, stay together? Who's gonna cook and what kind of food? How are we connecting? Like all of that is is something that we need to come together to have solutions for more than just, oh, let's put money and this technology toys, really I call it, and invest into the toys and forgetting that the people is who we need to invest in. And how do we actually come together, heal the trauma from the past hundreds of years, and then actually be able to move forward? So there's a lot of wealth of knowledge that we can all pull together And we learn a lot of work that needs to be done last year, not just from the pandemic, but also from the murder of George Floyd. There's a lot of things we need to unlearn and learn so we can move forward. And by people coming together, we can do that.
0: Yeah. And I think that segues perfectly into um, another question just about how, you know, the co-op focuses on bringing people, different types of people into the Climate solutions movement who have been previously neglected or otherwise have not been able to be present um, or encouraged to be present. And, you know, the co op really brings people into this in a way that is very empowering. And that's huge for intersectionality in the sustainability movement, which is a really key piece that we have seemed to be missing or that hasn't been a large enough piece for a while now. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on what this representation means. Um, you know, you've already kind of said it's helping us heal and learn because people are a resource.
1: Yeah. And then I always always like to share this story that I heard from Resource Generation, which is an amazing like nonprofit that moves resources from people with wealth to the to heal the system in many ways. I mean, they don't say it like that, but I see it like that. It's like we accumulate wealth from a system of oppression. And that does not mean people with wealth are evil and it's not individual responsibility, much much like racism. It's a systemic issue and we need to work together to unlearn it and be able to get out of this system. And there's this workshop called the Privilege Walk. Um, so the privilege walk is basically an exercise where you're in a group w- with a group of people, you all start with the same line and the facilitator would ask, will say a statement and you follow the instructions. So, like, if you're if you grew up speaking the language that your family and everyone around you speaks, take a step forward. If you um are a woman, take a step backwards. If you are, uh, if your ancestors came to this country, not out of will, take a step backwards. Um, If you own a property, or if you have somebody who is serving you growing up, like was a worker serving your, your household growing up, take a step forward. So we can see this is basically kind of like really distributing like the participants privilege across the board. And at the end of the exercise, you can see the people with the most privilege will be all the way in the front of the room. And the people with the least privilege will be all the way in the back of the room. Normally in our current worldview, we will take a conclusion and say, look, the privilege is very, there's a huge gap in the privilege and we need to help people in the back to get to the front. But the reality is that when you, there's a facilitator actually asks this question. Now let's at the end of this exercise, let's pause and ask yourself, who do you think can see the most in the room? Mm. So the people all the way in the front see a wall and their face and the person all the way at the very, very back can see everything. But we live in a world where the people all the way in the front were blinded, only see the wall, they get to drive the bus for everyone. And in many ways they think, oh, I need to get more people to the front so we're closer to the wall and we can see less instead of how do we actually change the entire field so that we can build a line of solidarity so we can work together to get out of this disaster that's gonna kill all of us. In order for us to design something that will work, we need to talk to the people who understand the reality of our current system. And the people who understand the reality of the current system are the people who've been disproportionately impacted by the fossil fuel economy the extractive economy. So, it's really about how do you bring them to the table? And so the people with privilege can start to follow because that is what just transition and climate solution looks like.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful way to explain that. Sounds like a great activity because, yeah, you can't erase privilege or the absence of it. We have to act knowing that it is there. And, you know, you have a lot of background working in this kind of thing, climate activism, and bringing groups together so that they can share the wealth of knowledge with each other. You know, you're also the founder of cross pollinators. And that encourages collaboration between grassroots movements, correct? Okay. Um, And, you know, that's also really important for intersectionality in all of our social justice movements because you can't have climate justice without social justice. And I was just wondering what first motivated you to focus on this aspect of activism?
1: Ah, well, so I used to work in the renewable energy industry. Um, So, and with this understanding that the market-based economy is the only thing we really got that works in, That's the best we got right now. So we need to rely on market-based economy to get us out of climate change, the climate crisis. And so how do we get, use a market-based economy to get renewable energy out to as many people as possible, recognizing that there is a huge inequity in, in the distribution of this technology. So we need to change the policy, we need to change the price of it so that more people can have access to it. It's all about clean energy access. But then we always get stuck in this question of how do you get low income communities to care about climate change, which frankly is an extremely, extremely ignorant question and very racist question, but people with privilege don't see that because people with privilege tend to live in their own bubble, again, in the front of the room and believe that because they're so educated, they actually know what is right and what is wrong. So we need to bring more people to the front of the room And um, but then the solution keeps on hitting flat, and we we got to a point. So I was actually part of this like really really high profile movie production team that actually connects to a big climate solution, climate action type of like suite of checklist of things that you can do to like become carbon free. And we had this idea of like, okay, well, sure, low-income communities can't afford solar panels or electric vehicle yet. This was back in 2013. And, but they can learn how to grow their own food and stop eating McDonald's. It's, that's how a lot of privileged people think. I definitely used to think, and I think that's changing now like they can learn how to eat healthier. So instead of eating like this very unhealthy diet that tends to happen in low-income communities without the recognition and understanding that food apartheid and redlining is part of the design of the racist system. It's not an individual choice. So um, I was tasked with this responsibility of like helping these um, different nonprofits to connect to these actions that we created so that we can all get on board together and I got into uh, I learned about community-based organizations through that work and for the first time because in the past my work has always been very international very global and um, I also come with this culture of I'm not going to come to your community and tell you what to do I'm going to come here and listen and see what I can offer this is just where I came from this is how I was taught growing up and so I went to these local, like, community-based organizations, and then I learned about these groups that solves neighborhood violence by growing food in the community garden. That blew my mind completely because that made me realize that, well, first, how, why would neighborhood violence and growing food have any connection if you're looking at everything in a very siloed way? Like, food is food, neighborhood violence is neighborhood violence. Um, Energy is energy, water is water. Like there's a different checklist. But if you really work with the community who really understand how their life works in a very intersectional way, you start to understand that neighborhood violence doesn't happen just because it's lack of education. It's because of lack of sovereignty. So if people have the ability to grow their own food, they don't have to go and rob somebody to get money to feed themselves or join a gang because they lack the sense of belonging. There's many different stacks and layers that cause a lot of issues that we we run into. And that's when I realized that climate change is not the problem. It's only a symptom of a larger issue that also caused neighborhood violence, violence on women, um, police brutality, immigration crisis, poverty, racism, all everything you name it, lack of education, um, mental health crisis, even opiate all these crises that people are so distracted from from climate change is all stemming from the same thing and that's where intersectionality comes in is that if we cannot recognize that the threat to our democracy today that's happening in in this country right now has anything to do with the fact that it also causes the extraction of Our resource and extraction of the people, which is now in many ways surfacing as climate crisis, then we're not going to actually face climate change the way it requires for us to get out and survive.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and you know, sounds like a really uh, important thing to learn along the way of community organizing. I can give you a
1: concrete example if this helps that be how, great. How this shows up. So um, right now, we're in 2021 right now, which is the year that this policy called net metering in California is being reviewed. And for those who don't know, net metering is basically um, a way that the, uh, it's a policy that allows people to have access to the grid and basically use the grid as a battery. So then we have solar on your roof. You don't actually have to have a battery in your house to be able to use the electricity generated on your solar system, on your roof at nighttime, when you're not generating electricity. So in the daytime, we're not using all the electrons. It gets stored in the grid um, by, by like metering credit. I mean, it doesn't physically get stored in there, but at nighttime, you can take the credit of how much you've put in already back out. So in many ways, it helps you save money as the person that has solar um, hosting the solar system and using the solar system. So, that is under threat right now. and investor in utilities using this narrative called cost shift. It's basically saying, okay, well, these people who have solar generally are affluent people who can go solar. Tend to, well, they now don't need to pay for the electricity. So they're not actually paying for the infrastructure, such as the grid and the transmission line that brings the power to them at nighttime. So it's really forcing low income people or people who cannot go solar to pay for the affluent people um, and they're not paying a fair share. It's called a cost shift narrative. And this in reality is really just using race and equity as a wedge to break apart people's ability to build power because investor and utilities see the inequity in our society, in our energy system and just the system in general that predates the the solar industry. That basically use that as a way for them to maintain the power. So they put in this um, assembly bill called 1139 earlier this year that was spearheaded by one of the most powerful politicians in California, who's also an environmental justice advocate. And they're being backed by a lot of justice based people, like the labor unions and a lot of equity people, um, because, and I'm not saying they're right. It's they're using this narrative because of this inequity that exists in our system. So for those people who's been saying that climate change is so urgent, it is a earth science problem. We need to focus on that earth science problem, and we can deal with the social science problem. is completely wrong if you really look at what's been going on with these political and, and political fight. And this is not just about Republican versus Democrat political fight as in power struggle of the people who have accumulated so much wealth and power, and they want to maintain that. And in order to maintain that, they have to maintain the status quo and they will use the inequity that's happening to stop any transition from happening. And so as long as we are not going to think anything about equity and really reflect on how things have been going economically, the more we're delaying the energy transition.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure... Our listeners are curious what they can do to help with this. I'm sure listening would be a big thing that people can do. Um, but what would you tell someone who wants to get involved with people power more specifically or um, who wants to participate in this um, you know, sharing of knowledge and promoting of power and equalizing power?
1: I think first we have to understand the system. Um, There is, the system is designed intentionally to be very complicated and the system, I'm also specifically talking about the energy system. Energy system in many ways shape our economic system. And it is very easy for people to feel like, oh, this is too far away from my understanding. I'm bored or I'm turning off. I, I don't want to engage and stop engaging and we'll pick something that's a little easier and visceral such as food or land, which is both are still incredibly important. But I think for those who really want to tackle on this issue of energy justice, which in, any, in many ways is what is slowing down the transition for us to actually get out of climate change, we have to figure out using whatever gifts we have to figure out how we can talk about the injustice of the energy system better. And at People Power Solar Cooperative, our staff's role is really to actively help build the skills, leadership, and people power necessary to overcome the barriers to energy controls in our community. So we create curriculums and work with our worker owners to make it better because we're working together. We're not servers provider. So we would encourage people to just find the community. It could be People Power Solar Cooperative. It could be somebody, someone else to come together and actually talk about how the energy system works and what it's actually doing to us, how it's extracting money from us. Even today, the more you're paying your utility bill, the more you're financing the very system that's killing us all. And the solution is not go off grid because not everyone can go off grid. So how do we actually build a movement to actually take over this grid that is already existing and is helping us share our energy. And it requires a lot of deep political understanding for us to understand how to work together. There's no silver bullet. The only silver bullet is us coming together and work together and really understand what energy democracy means happen to be right next to me. I happen to have this book called energy democracy. It's by Denise Fairchild and Al Weinrub. They, they're actually just editor because this whole book is written by 10 different communities talking about 10 different strategies on what energy democracy looks like. Energy democracy is not energy independence. Energy democracy is not energy access. Energy democracy is about how people can come together and take the power away from corporate establishment and back in the hands of the people to, so then they can not just survive, but can thrive.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting book. And I think that that's great advice. Just wanted to ask, as we're wrapping up here, if there's any extra food for thought that you would like to leave our audience with or ways that they can engage.
1: Sure, I would just remind people that many of us have been thinking of energy just like a monthly pill to monthly bill to pay, or something that contributes to pollution in our communities. And sometimes, if we're educated enough, we we'll think about it as a climate change um, contributor. And when there's something we can do with an energy, but because we have been trained to be acting and treated as consumers. Our understanding of energy has been very limited as a result So one very simple action we can do is just starting from today is to change the narrative of what energy means So in any time we want to talk about energy and the and who the energy will go into, we should not use the word customers we should talk about community because we need to start to change this dynamic of energy not looking at community as customer so we can, take more money from them, but really as partners. How can we encourage, use this language to encourage people to understand that we are all partners and we can come together and change the energy system. So we, it starts with the language of stop using the word customers. I, yes, of course, we are all paying for energy, but we don't have to keep doing that if we start to look at ourselves with the ability to change. So um, as communities, as partners, these are these are alternative words, whatever words you can come up with, it's not customers because we are way more than customers and we need to be empowered to start doing that so we can be activated to start to act. And it really all starts with the language that we use.
0: Well, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I know that I've learned a lot and I'm sure that other people have a lot to learn from this conversation. A big thank you to Crystal for taking the time to chat with me, as well as to Poddington Bear for this song, Tender and Curious. You've been listening to Climate Vibes, a podcast by The Climate Music Project. We are an organization that works to communicate a sense of urgency about the climate crisis using the emotional power of music. Check us out at climatemusic.org. Once again, my name is Maddie Young. Thank you for listening and follow us for more episodes.